Over its history, Korea has been occupied by foreign powers so many times they had to develop a sixth sense of how to read a room. Because of these constant sort of outsiders taking over, Koreans had to develop nunchi in order to survive. Coming up, Yuni Hong explains how the Korean art of observation can help you at home, at work, and in your travels. Everybody wants to soak in the beauty of Italy's Amalfi Coast, but the crush of tourist crowds can get ugly. Minori and Maiori are called minor and major. Those are beach communities that are very well known with Italians, but not so much with the foreigners. Tour guide Anne Long from Sorrento recommends where to enjoy Italy's most dramatic coastline. Beautiful, beautiful view looking to Scala. Wonderful little cheap pensiones with good food. Korean Nunchi, Italy's Amalfi, and listeners check in with us in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. For 5,000 years, Korea has been doing something that might make our lives better. Yuni Hong joins us in a bit to introduce us to the time-honored Korean art of Nunchi. Yuni believes it's helped propel South Korea into an ultra-modern and prosperous country. We'll learn how it can be an antidote to our culture of self-promotion on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also check in with listener travel reports and feedback about what you hear on the show at 877-333-RICK. But first, when you dream of a change of scenery, I'll bet it looks a lot like the Amalfi Coast of Italy. It's famous for the scent of lemon trees and breathtaking ocean views from a white-knuckle highway high above the jagged slopes of the Sorrentine Peninsula. Anne Long grew up in small-town Illinois and fell in love with an Italian from Sorrento, and she's made that area her home ever since. She joins us for an insider's view for exploring the Amalfi area and nearby without being at the mercy of an endless crowd of fellow sightseers. Anne, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Rick. Now, Anne... You live in the Amalfi Coast. Yes. Have you noticed, uh, how does it deal with the congestion? I mean, everybody's wild about the Amalfi Coast. Everyone wants to see it. It's one of the main things that when you're coming down to my area. Pompeii and the Amalfi Coast are two big stops. Well, you know, when I think about it, of all the places I could stay with a tour group, uh, Sorrento, you could spend a lot of nights there, I think, because from that home base you can see Capri, you can see Pompeii. Naples, you can see Pompeii, and of course you can make that excursion down the Amalfi Coast. That's right. Now, everybody wants to go to the famous places on the Amalfi, the town of Amalfi, Positano, Ravello, but there must be another dimension because even parking your car is like impossible in Amalfi. It's become impossible. It really has become impossible. And those seems to be the cities that are more advertised to the American market that they're familiar with the name. But there's so many pretty places between those cities and past. Okay. And you're following the same drive, and you're even extending it, even as far as Salerno. So there is that drive. It's the coastal, the Highway 101. Yes, <laughs> kind of. that's exactly right. It is a narrow road with a lot of buses. I remember they had a situation, what was the deal? One day everybody would go north, and the other day everybody would go south, or what is that? They, they tried with smaller buses, that now you can't go with anything longer than a certain thing so that they could pass correctly. Then they got to the alternative license plates. Then they got to the permits that they'd have to apply for a permit. And now it's one way. Buses can go down, but they have to come back a different way. They can't come back the same way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Okay, so it is uh, north to south. And then you can go back inland. Yeah, go over the top and come back on the tollway from Salerno. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anne Lon. We're talking about her adopted neighborhood, the Amalfi Coast. Why is there so much intrigue 
about the Amalfi Coast. What is it about it that brings all the people there? Well, they're, they're very well advertised for fashion, for food, for the limoncello, for pottery, and just the spectacular, very high-end restaurants and hotels. So and people Positano are, is like made for jet setters. Yeah, all exactly. the fashion. It's a, just a gorgeous, tiny little cobbled town. But it's got all these design shops. And the and, yachts. All and, the yachts that are outside of Positano. Right. you got to get to know somebody down at the port so that you know who's in town. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So and as, a, as just part of the rabble who doesn't have a yacht, right. you can be stuck outside of town wondering, why can't I get, get in? Get in. So where, where would you go that's not one of the famous places? So, of course, you certainly want to see the whole Amalfi Coast. But once you get to Amalfi, you can whether you're, you're driving, you continue on. Or if you take the public bus, you just swap. And you can go further on, Minori and Maiori are called minor and major. Those are beach communities that are very well known with Italians, but not so much with the foreigners. And my experience in Minori is that there are a lot of big, simple hotels that have affordable rooms, very likely affordable. to have a spot. Yeah. And a che- little bit cheaper prices. Cheaper. So you that's can... Minori, M-I-N-O-R-I, and then the sister city, Maori, M-A-I-O-R-I. Is that literally major and minor? Yes, named after the branches of a river. Ah, and then from there you've got access to a nice beach. Very nice beach. The Maori is major is the uh, largest beach, flat beach, much better than Positano, much better than Amalfi. Isn't that ironic? And I'm sure Everybody cheaper. Goes, people go to the beach and they go to Positano and they don't get as nice a Not beach. Not as, as nice and pay three times the amount. And I would think Minori is just half an hour away from some of these other famous places. Right, exactly. On a public bus. On a public bus. And the bus and would come by... And there's Roman history. There are Roman remains in that town of Minori as well. So it's not just that you go there for a beach. You can have a walk around and have a look at the history. Now, there's a very popular walk that goes from up in the hills in Ravello down to Amalfi, the town. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a dramatic walk. Talk a little bit about the hikes possible in in the Amalfi Coast. Right. We have, again, they sell hiking maps that take you all either horizontally right across the mountain or up and down. And, of course, our most famous one is the Pathway of the Gods Mm. that starts up above Amalfi and heads and finishes above Positano. Mm. So you've got the sea in front of you the whole time while you're walking. If you're the kind of hiker that likes to have gravity be on your side, you can take a bus or a taxi up to the top. Right. You start at the top and then work your way down. And then work your way down. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ann Long about exploring deeper into the Amalfi Coast. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Larry's giving us a call from Boston. Larry, have you struggled with the crowds in the Amalfi, and how'd you do? Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the things that's almost a little off-putting about such a beautiful place is the massive amount of traffic. And even we had a day trip, actually, from a cruise and we had a, a driver, and even with the driver in the smaller vehicle, we still sat a ton of traffic going up on the coast. So my, my question actually is, is there a suggestion of, of where to stay or how to stay either close to the Amalfi Coast? And, like, what can you do when you're there? Like, are there uh, cooking classes or other things that you could do to sort of really get the, the culture and the um, history and the, the feel for the people who actually live in those towns along the Amalfi Coast? Well, again, it's a matter of getting away from the town centers and things. As you go up the hill to Ravello, you get to a certain point and the road splits. And one goes to a Ravello, the other one goes to a place called Scala. Scala has a perfect view looking towards Ravello. Scala, I've always looked at it from across Ravello. It's right. It's beautiful, beautiful view looking to Scala. Wonderful, little cheap pensiones with good food. 
Uh, and, the, and the name of the town means staircase. It's the staircase. staircase There's right? a thousand <laughs> stairs that go from Scala. Scala down to Amalfi because that was the only way they could get up and down. So they have history. There's plenty of places to stay. You can mix in. It's local people, St. And it Lawrence. Just, it just doesn't have the tourism and the it tourist doesn't have board the tourist and the board. promotional budget Ex- of Ravello. Exactly. But what a view. It's just a spectacular view and not the crowds. Scala. And then right. from there, you could definitely get a bus down and travel around You know, for sightseeing. Uh, we have Vietri Sulmari, which is at the end of the Amalfi Coast. That's where the pottery industry is based. So you got pottery, and can you go to an actual... Oh, there's tons of stores there. It's just yeah. one store after another, one factory after another, producing the pottery, most of the pottery that's sold on the coast. Now, I would imagine some of these places are designed for tour buses to stop, but an individual in a car, could they stop And not these? even tour buses, because they're all going on the Amalfi Coast. Nobody bothers. They'll buy the pottery in Amalfi. They won't bother going to Vietri, okay. because it's not really adapted for buses. Okay. And then when you're down in that Salerno, it's Salerno the big city is down the by the, the ruins of Paestum. Yes. So some of the best Greek ruins anywhere are an hour's drive from the Amalfi Coast near uh, Salerno. Down in Salerno, you've got these um, buffalo farms where they make the mozzarella. Yeah. And it's all, Salerno is also getting a lot of some cruise ships in. So they've picked the city up. They've oh, cleaned it, it up. Oh, because it was quite a... Right. A, it was just a, a port city. Down in dirty right. port city before. No, they, it's becoming quite a nice little place. All right. Larry, thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. Anne Long's our guide to enjoying her home base of Sorrento and the Amalfi Coast, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Neil's calling from Bayside in Wisconsin. Neil, what have you been thinking about the Amalfi Coast? Well, we're thinking about taking uh, several generations, uh, my wife and I, our son, and and then our other son and daughter-in-law, and the new Bambino. So we've made a few... uh, trips to Italy in the past, but never south of Rome, and never with a uh, nine-month-old. Mm. So we're, uh, we, and we have a couple of weeks, and we're planning to spend them in the Amalfi Coast area. So it sounds, from what I'm, I'm hearing, that Sorrento would be a good base, but should we base there for both weeks, or should we, you know, mm. is a week there and a week somewhere else a good choice? Mm. Uh, and And what would some of the lodging options be? I know some countries get a little funny about uh, some of the non-hotel options. What's Italy's position on that? Well, you've got a lot of different options. I think Sorrento is a very good base with the availability of public transportation to get you to lots of different sites. If you're on the Amalfi Coast, you're going to be on the Amalfi Coast traveling along it, but it's very hard to get out of there in order to travel to places like Pompeii, uh, Capri, it's just a little extra effort. So Sorrento is more Sorrento efficient. Sorrento is more efficient way. for moving around. But if you if you want to relax for a week and just do little half-day trips here and there, maybe you know, special ice creams, the views, it also depends on whether you're renting a car you're with public transportation, with a baby. It definitely gets very uh, hard when you're trying to get a, a young baby on public oh, transportation. Be careful. We, we, went to, we went to southern Italy with a, when our kids were little tiny kids and it was stressful. It was hard. It's hot. It's crowded. It's not comfortable. And you want to think about that carefully, Neil. I agree with Anne. Uh, you could get a place that's comfortable for the family in Sorrento. Use that as a springboard. You could all go out to the island of Capri. Uh, with four people, I would hire a guide and have that guide meet you at Capri and, and be in your service for half a day. But the boat ride's just 30 or 40 minutes. It's a delight. And then what I would do with four of you is I'd hire a private taxi for the day to do the Amalfi Coast stops because when you hire a car with a driver, 
they can drop you in the town that has all sorts of congestion and no parking and meet you an hour later or whenever you decide you want to meet. And that lets you enjoy without the headache of parking and your kids waiting for you and all that. So I, I think sure. if, I, if I had a family sure. of four or three generations, I would, I would do the touristy thing. I would stay one week in Positano. I'd book a place in Positano and be a low-end jet setter. And then I would use Sorrento for my base to explore. You live just a few minutes from Sorrento, and what I've been impressed by are the public beaches that the tourists don't go to that are just great beaches a little bit north of Sorrento. Right. Oh, the, the, this one that's not far from where I live, everybody that's anybody, all the yacht stuff it's there the to go, scene. right? Because there's nobody there to bother them. And you go there and you rent your own little cabana or whatever, right. and you've got your access to showers, and you're part of the the local community going to enjoy the beach, just that's like right. any town that has a beach, and the, you know the parents take their kids there. Hey, Neil, thanks so much for the call. Thank you. And Anne Long, thank you for helping us. Uh, you live there. You've lived there for decades. And Come you and know visit me whenever you want. <laughs> We're all, our arms are open. We'll enjoy a big, warm, and uh, lemony welcome That's when right. we go to all the charms of Italy south of Naples. Gelato and limoncello for everyone. <laughs> You're tempting me. <laughs> Grazie. Frigo. Oh, I can still see the flowers blooming around uh, where we met on the Isle of Capri. It's a type of sixth sense, she says, is shared by Sherlock Holmes, Steve Jobs, and maybe even your cat. Yuni Hong explains how the power of Nunchi can help you too. Next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Turaj. This is Farsi for I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Yuni Hong says Koreans have a superpower. A sixth sense for winning friends and influencing people. It's called nunchi. It's a subtle art of gauging people's thoughts and feelings in order to build harmony and connection. This is a tradition of Korean emotional intelligence, and it goes back more than 5,000 years. Yuni was last with us on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about the birth of Korean cool. Now she's back to take us deeper into what it means to be Korean and to explore traditions that she found traditions that can help us all when we connect with people in our travels. Her latest book is called The Power of Nunji, The Korean Secret to Happiness and Success. Yuni, thanks so much for being back with us. Always happy to talk to you, Rick. So Nunji, it's literally eye measure, I guess, in, in the Korean language. What is it, just in a nutshell? Sure. It is the art of taking the room temperature, basically reading the room, and you do that by assessing the whole atmosphere in the room and not just the individuals in it. And you do this by sort of reading people's thoughts and feelings with the purpose of getting along with people and creating an overall atmosphere of harmony in the room. So it's dealing with a group of people rather than one-on-one? Right. I would say the main difference between nunchi and just generally being observant, well, there's two of them. I would say the first big difference is, yeah, the atmosphere on the whole, the idea of the whole being more than the sum of the people in the hmm. room. Is that related to feng shui? Yeah, is... yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It's the feng shui of the room. Um, with people yeah, instead of furniture. With people, yes, exactly. Like who's huh. in the room? Who's the oldest? Who's the youngest? Okay. Uh, what does their relationship to each other seem to be? Do they look like there's just been a tense moment or are they laughing at something? And you wrote, Uni, uh, in your book that nunchi is perhaps the most important skill you'll ever learn, a skill that gets to the core of being human. Wow, that's quite a statement. 
Well, I don't think it's an exaggeration either because, uh, well, you know, Aristotle, he's not Korean, but he, he said that humans are by definition social animals. Mm. You know, it's what makes us different from other animals is that we literally need yeah. other humans to survive, right? Uh, the reason the polis exists, you know, Plato even talked about this. It's not because we enjoy each other's company. It's because the city or the town is the smallest unit of people who can actually survive. It's literally based on human survival. So nunshi, in turn, is a way of surviving with other people. In fact, there's a Korean expression, half of social life is nunshi. So that's 50% is a lot. So I don't think that's, yes. I think it's very fair to say that it's the most important skill perhaps that you'll ever yeah. learn. And you called it the guiding principle of Korean life. Now, why Korea? Is it uniquely applicable to Korea? Is there a reason it's more more predominant or important in Korea? Or does it work equally well in any society? It's just other societies don't appreciate it so much. So, I mean, when I describe nunchi to people, no matter what culture the person's from, they will recognize something analogous in their own culture. But what makes nunchi Korean has to do with Korean history. In the approximately 5,000 years of Korean history, the country has supposedly been invaded 800 times. I don't know if that's accurate, but they actually say, oh, the only country that's been invaded more times is Scotland. Huh. So they were, you know, they were basically conquered by everyone from the Mongols, the Manchus, to the Japanese, because Korea, the peninsula, is really strategically located between China and Japan. And at various points, everybody kind of wanted it. It was like Gibraltar. Right. So because of these constant sort of outsiders taking over, Koreans had to develop nunchi in order to survive. Because if you're in any kind of subordinate situation, even if it's just like a civilized one, like employee and boss, you have to be able to read the boss's mood. You have to be able to read the master's mood oh, if you're you a slave. Yeah, you have to be able to read the colonial overlord's mood. Exactly. Oh, exactly. baby. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm always a little bit skeptical about any woo-woo kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what is the practical, really, come on, what is the practical value of this? But you wrote about your personal life story and how you can really attribute <laughs> quite a lot to your appreciation of Nunchi. Give us, a, give us the story here. Right. I mean, I actually share your skepticism of anything woo-woo, but I think that Nunchi is different because it is really pragmatic and you can be as selfish or as altruistic as you want it to be. And proof that it actually works is that I was able to use it when I was as young as 12. I was born in the U.S. and I lived here until I was 12 years old. And then my family decided suddenly to move back to Korea or my parents were from there. I had never lived in Korea. I didn't speak any Korean because in those days when I was growing up, there was a belief among a lot of people that it was bad for the kid to be raised bilingually. Anyway, so we, we didn't, we only spoke English at home. Uh, so despite not knowing any Korean, I, we went to Seoul. I was immediately placed in a regular Korean public school. And I had to use my nunchi. And it's a good thing my parents had taught me about it beforehand. Because nunchi isn't really just about being smart or studying hard. It's about, you know, that expression, work smarter, not harder. You know, because I didn't know the language, I had to rely on nonverbal cues, and Nunchi is literally reading nonverbal cues. Oh, so if you're if you're sort of uh, unable to communicate, if you're mute 
in a room of people, you can still understand a lot just because you're observant in a nunchi way. Absolutely. And, you know, since this is a travel show, you know, I guess what we're going to talk about in a minute is how nunchi is super helpful when you're in a foreign environment huh. for precisely the reason that it's nonverbal. Yes. But just going back to my own experience, so, you know, I'm 12 years old, you know, not stupid, but definitely in this classroom, not the sharpest uh, knife in the drawer either. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, but just by looking... But your secret weapon, you're a, a nunchi ninja. <laughs> Yeah, the secret weapon of the disadvantage. In my case, I had to just watch what people are doing. And, you know, so like even if you don't know the language, you can see, you know, that guy seems to be the teacher's pet. You know, the, sm the teacher's always smiling when he talks. So if I'm ever in trouble or don't understand, I'm going to ask that guy. Wow. You know, I'm going to do what that guy does. Hmm. That, well, that makes sense. And you can see in your life, it, it really was much more than woo-woo. We're learning about the Korean skill of reading a room and gauging others' thoughts and feelings right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is the author Yuni Hong. Her latest book is called The Power of Nunchi, and her website is unihong.com. That's spelled E-U-N-Y. Yuni, in your book, you lay out the, the eight rules of nunchi, and uh, I'm just going to state the rule, and if you could just expand on it just a, a bit. We'll go through that so our listeners can better understand this whole concept, because it's totally new to me. Empty, sure. Number ahead. one, empty your mind. Right. Um, I know that sounds actually really difficult and possibly vague, but it basically just means remove prejudices that you have in the situation that you're entering. Like, how do you know something's a prejudice? Like, if you enter a new country or a room or situation and you're already annoyed to be entering it, that's a type of prejudice. All right. That sounds good right. advice. Be, num <laughs> number two, be aware of the nunchi observer effect. What's the, the nunchi observer effect? Right. So in, in physics, there's something called the, um, I think it's called the quantum observer effect or something like that. Basically, things change by being observed. Hmm. And when you enter a room, even if you're doing nothing except entering it and looking at people, you're already changing the atmosphere of the room. Hmm. Okay. So in other words, you don't have to make a big song and dance. Right. So be sensitive to that. Be tuned into that. Right. Don't tell a joke immediately just to let people know you're there. You're already changing the atmosphere. Number three, if you just entered a room, remember that everyone has been there longer than you. Watch them to gain information. Right. I mean, that just makes sense, right? If people have been there already, they know what the atmosphere is. They know what was just discussed. You don't. So if you just barrel in without taking... Yeah, you're the newcomer. So just lay low and, and catch up by observing. Exactly. Just like when you're new in a, a workplace. Number four, never pass up a good opportunity to shut up. <laughs> this is possibly the most important rule, actually. It's not just because by shutting up you don't insult people. It's because if you listen to people, and I would say, well, there's an expression by the Greek Stoic Epictetus, which is we are given two ears and one mouth so that we may listen twice as much as we speak. I think that's the right ratio. Listening to speaking should be hmm. two to one. There's two reasons for this. One is it makes the other person feel heard, which is all anyone really wants. They usually don't care if you agree with them. They just want to be acknowledged. The second is it's to your advantage because it's calming. It reduces anxiety to plug into the other person. And the more you know about them, the more material you have just to be Machiavellian about it. Like anyone mm -hmm. who's good at business or negotiation knows that the person who is nervous about silence always loses. Wow. Uh, you know, and I've been learning that just through the School of Hard Knocks without studying Nunchi. 
and I've been coming around to that awareness that in many cases, I'm, I'm used to jumping in, dominating the conversation, stepping on people's lines and so on. But if you just kind of take a breath, listen, observe, take it in, let other people show their cards, really makes a lot of sense. Number five, manners exist for a reason. Right. I would say, you know, in 21st century modern life, people think that manners are not necessary and that they're just some patriarchal holdover that's designed for the upper class to make the lower class feel bad. This is not true at all. Manners exist because it makes other people around you feel comfortable. Hmm. And so basic manners or even table manners are a good way to start off using nunchi, you know. So if, let's say that you, you know, bread plates usually on the left, mm-hmm. you know, in America. Let's say you just got to be you and you want the bread plate that's at right. your right. Okay, great. That means the other person hasn't got a bread plate. So, you know, how is that you being you? You know, that could be related to rituals exist for a reason also. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. Like um, you write how the exchange of business cards is, is a ritual in Korea, and it's there for a reason. Exactly. I mean, people are like, why do you still have cards in the 21st century, and why do you spend 10 seconds looking at the card when you get it? It's all about creating that beat, that extra mm-hmm. pause, so that everyone can evaluate each other. Ah. Number six, read between the lines. Right. Um, everyone thinks they know what that means, but uh, you can only do that if you're actually paying attention. And most people just give lip service to that advice because everyone, you know, in an argument will end up saying at some point, I'm not a mind reader. Why didn't you tell me? Hmm. You know, that's not really a nice thing to say. <laughs> you know, you're accusing the person of lying or concealing things when in fact they're probably just afraid to talk to you or they don't know what they're feeling. So it is your job, actually, to read their mind, or at least try to read nonverbal cues. So recognize people don't always say what they're thinking. Yeah, and that's actually their right. Right. And if you're thoughtful, and if you realize that's part of the, the whole style of talking, it gives you an advantage. Number seven, causing unintentional harm can be as bad as intentional harm. Yeah, this is probably one of the more controversial things I say in the book, because, you know... People think that they should get half credit if they do something, but they didn't mean to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, from a moral point of view, absolutely. Intention uh, matters a lot, and, you know, you shouldn't be penalized if it just goes bad. Practically speaking, a lot of times the damage you create is equal to, you know, whether you intended to harm people or not. And, you know, blackface Halloween costumes are a really good example of that. Even if you genuinely thought it was a joke, the other person got hurt. So... Um, so un- unintentional is, is it's harm nevertheless, and because it was unintentional, it really means you were you were not very thoughtful about it in most cases. Right, and it hurts you as much as them. So it's to your disadvantage. And finally, number yeah. eight, be nimble, be quick. Right. So as I mentioned, um, speed is really important to nunchi, and in fact, in Korea, if you are skilled at nunchi, they don't say this person has good nunchi. They say this person has quick. Nunchi, because adaptability is important. It does You don't just read the room. You have to take into account any changes in the room. Wow. This really is uh, like a new way of... It shines a new light on interaction with people and, and connecting and just being out there as a social... part of the social scene. Yuni Hong moved with her family from Chicago to South Korea at the age of 12. She credits the skills of Nunji with helping her to get to the top of her class within a year of moving to Seoul, even before she became fluent in Korean. 
Uni believes this Korean art of building trust by gauging other people's thoughts and feelings is an important skill that may also be a key to happiness. Her book is called The Power of Nunchi, and she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Uni, this is a travel show, and uh, connecting with people is fundamental to good travel. Let's cap this discussion with an example of how nunchi-deficient travelers might really lose something and how somebody who's tuned into nunchi can travel better. Right. Well, what's the number one mistake that travelers make? It's that they assume that everyone is like them. You know, if you're traveling, you don't have to learn everything about that specific culture. I mean, it's great if you do, but what's important is that you pay attention when you get there. And I'll give you a, a really sort of alarming example. I, like something like 15 years ago, I don't know if you remember this, uh, in New York City, there was a Danish tourist who left her baby in a stroller on a sidewalk in the East Village, or the Lower East Side, rather, and while she was eating in the restaurant inside. So the baby was unattended, sitting in a stroller that was just next to, like, a lamppost. Mm-hmm. So somebody obviously called the police, and the police arrested the woman, and, you know, and the child just temporarily was taken into Child Protective Services. And she said, and the consulate, the Danish consulate said, in Denmark, it is normal to leave the child outside a restaurant because it's, you know, it's, they should get fresh air. And why do they want to be, you know, indoors where everyone's drinking or whatever? And the police commissioner of New York said, it's not our concern what's customary in Denmark. So in other words, you know, this is not how we do it where I am. Does not fly anywhere. I mean, in an extreme example, you could literally lose your child. I mean, she eventually got it back. After so that was bad nunchi on that Dane's part. Terrible, terrible. But, you know, in smaller ways, you know, why would you want to have bad nunchi? I mean, you, maybe you won't lose your child, but people you ask directions from might not give you directions. Clerks who would otherwise help you might not help you. Uh, I used to live in France, and that's a complaint a lot of Americans have is that French people are rude. But when if I interrogate, if I prod them, I'm like, okay, I know what happened here. You didn't say bonjour or even hello. That's you know, a perfect you example of uh, applying <laughs> nunchi in a in a we're so Eurocentric, you know, and everybody knows in France you got these complexities and so on. But if you just stand at the edge of the room and observe for a little while, then you'll be not fighting the norm, but going with the cultural flow. Yes, exactly. And like the number one enemy of nunchi is arrogance. And that is what makes the difference between an enjoyable holiday and a non-enjoyable holiday is your own attitude. So, Uni, is this something in your daily walk? You're on vacation, traveling in a foreign land, you're going to work and you want to just be an effective part of the team. Is this something that just becomes like breathing, just without even thinking? Or is this something you've got to remember and, and remind yourself, okay, uh, Nunchi, let's do it the right way? Yeah, some people are definitely naturally good at it. For me, it's something I have to switch on, actually. Um, I, would, I would say I wasn't really born with very good natural Nunchi. I have to, you know, it's just sort of like any kind of habituated behavior. Like if somebody has anger management training or something, it's the same thing. They can manage it, but they have to remember right. to manage it. Yuni Hong, thank you so much. This is fun to get an insight into uh, the Korean secret to happiness and success, the power of Nunchi, and how we can apply that at home and abroad. Thank you so much. In universal
Up next, we'll make time for some listener feedback and to hear your travel tales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and we welcome your emails to radio at ricksteves.com. Thanks for traveling with us each week on Travel with Rick Steves. What have you heard lately on Travel with Rick Steves that evokes memories from your travels? Or is there anything you've heard discussed on the show that you'd like to comment on? We welcome your thoughts. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com or our phone number is 877-333-7425. From time to time, we'll call back a group of listeners to hear what you have to say and make time for you to share it on the show. Ben's on the line from Anchorage up in Alaska. Hey, Ben, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, good to talk with you today. Through the years, I've always noticed your shows, you're tromping around in the uh, beautiful summertime there. Myself, I um, frequently get away uh, from Alaska in the winter and was just um, wanting to pass along maybe some thoughts about uh, the benefits of winter travel. I'd love to hear because, you know, the disadvantages of summer travel are getting greater and greater. Yes, the crowds that um, you mentioned uh, in your guidebooks and the need to get tickets way in advance. And oh, yeah. What complicates that is everybody wants to do the same thing, you know? I mean, I was just reading about the Louvre, and everybody just wants to go to the Mona Lisa, and they ignore, just in the next room, wonderful art. But we have this herd mentality, and we all go at the same time, and then it's getting hotter and hotter. So, yeah, what about off-season? You know, it's definitely, we all have those things on our bucket list. For me, one of the things was to see uh, Picasso's Guernica. Oh, yeah. Incredible painting. But, you know, the advantage in the wintertime, I made a January trip, and uh, I'm there in the Sofia Arena in Madrid in the morning, and I had the room all to myself and two security guards. So Now, that um, is a beautiful thing right there. Imagine being all alone with Guernica, and you've got the security guards there making sure... You don't walk off with it, although it would be kind of big to put in your rucksack. But it's just you and that that masterpiece. And uh, just the thought of being in Madrid where you need a coat when people are eating inside instead of outside. I love being in inside in these amazing bars and pubs and restaurants and cafes in Madrid. And if you're there in the summer, you're outside and it's hot. Absolutely. Talking about the cafes and uh, hanging out there. Yeah, certainly... It gets colder in my winter travels, but, you know, gives me an excuse to uh, wander inside to some of the wonderful uh, cafes, have some great yeah. Italian coffee, and uh, meet with the locals there, you know. Now, so. Ben, you know, it's interesting because I'm in the travel business, and everybody in the tourism industry is trying to promote their off-season travel because, you know, they've, they've just got empty rooms, and they've got available guides, and they've got more capacity, so why not spread it out? So a lot of times when we get advertising from a, a local tourist industry, it's really just to spread out the business so they can gross more over the whole year. So you have to be a little bit canny about that as a consumer. On the other hand, what used to be shoulder season, I think, was May and September. It honestly is April and October now. So when people are thinking about shoulder season, you know, decent weather but less crowds, um, more relaxed, it used to be May and September. Now, I would think May and September are better called peak season. And in general, you want to go farther away on that bell-shaped curve and consider April and October good shoulder season months. And uh, beyond that, dead of winter is just fine in big cities because all the cultural stuff is going full steam. Uh, the people are a little more tuned into uh, activities other than maximizing the tourist industry. 
And all you got to do is uh, be, uh, you know, dressing properly so you can be outdoors for long stretches at a time. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I was uh, made a trek to um, Munich over uh, Halloween a couple years ago. It was right after, you know, Oktoberfest and all the crowds and the visitors had cleared out pretty much and um, went to the Victualin Markt. And it was um, all locals with their families, and it was a great experience, um, and it was yeah. just incredible. That's the reality. Uh, you know, in, in the summer, they uh, cater to the tourists. In the winter, they cater more to the locals, and it's, it's more of a local scene. I remember when we filmed our Christmas special for public television, I had to buy a whole new wardrobe for, you know, working outdoors in the winter. And I loved just dressing up warm, having warmer shoes, warmer coat, sweater, you know, um, mittens, hat. It's really important if you're thinking of going in the winter to remember you're not going from the car into the movie theater or from the car into the mall or from the car to your office or home. You're on the street for hours at a time sightseeing. So you really want to be able to layer it and you really want warm shoes and and mitts and and a good hat. You know, absolutely. You hit on one key thing there. Um, Certainly Alaskans learn up here that it's about layering. And like other places, we like to say, you know, they're there's no bad weather, just bad gear. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> ben, thanks so much for your call, and we'll consider um, off-season travel. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Take care. Ethan's calling in from Oakland in California. Ethan, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I've been reading your guidebooks for more years than I can remember. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I've been writing them for more years than I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> I was inspired to uh, contact you after an episode of your radio show where you talked about Hungary recently. I went to Hungary about five years ago with my husband, and we stayed in a B&B, and it was run by a gay man. And while we were there, he told us not to, to touch in public. And then he said most people from Budapest, it would be fine, but you never know who's going to be there from the country. And so we had hoped to come back and go visit the wine country of Hungary someday. But after his comments about not being sure it would go over well, we didn't really want to visit a country that didn't welcome us. Right. So recently on the call, you had two guides from Hungary, and you were reassuring people that despite the the last five years of Orban and and the intensification of the conservative values there, that really it was affecting only the locals and not the tourists. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that there are some tourists it really does affect. Five years ago in Budapest, we were encouraged not to hold hands. And that's nowadays, it seems even more hmm. worrisome. Poland as well. Poland so, also, yeah. Oh, that's such a good um, reminder. And thank you for um, catching us on that. I think my Hungarian guides, you know, they wanted to be positive and they don't like to yes. think of their country as homophobic. But we've got this really troubling rise of right wing autocracy and fear mongering politicians. Uh, you know, and we we see it in Hungary, we see it in Turkey, we see it in Russia, we see it in Poland, and in each of these cases, just the flat out safety of being gay on the street has has been threatened, hasn't it? Yeah, you never know who's around the corner. And truthfully, even in San Francisco, where we live, we were called out once. Yeah, but apparently, it goes a lot worse than being called out if you're unlucky in some countries. Well, think of the difference in. Uh, extremeness or or accepting or whatever between urban outlook and countryside outlook in any society. 
and yeah. uh, it's the same Here in Hungary. Well. If it was this way in the United States, it would be the same way between Budapest and the countryside. And, yeah. you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg and Russia, there you'd have an example of the most cosmopolitan, uh, inclusive people that are comfortable with diversity. But you get out into the countryside where everybody's the same, and then if mm-hmm. somebody's different, it's much it more of a threat out. to those people. So that's exactly. good advice. Now, you were in Hungary five years ago and then recently, or what? Uh, no, we had wanted to come back for do a wine tour of the country, uh, but we decided, uh, I mean, we could come back, but we'd kind of have to act like we were brothers rather than well, what is a the, couple. You know, Ethan, that's a, an interesting question, because for you, you know, I, I would imagine if you're gay, you just, as a matter of principle, don't want to hide it. But are you ever pragmatic and you just say, okay, we got to be, you know, pretend like we're not gay here? Do you put up with that or do you just, as a matter of principle, say, hell no? I think in this case, it's when you're taking a vacation, you want it to feel like a vacation. So sometimes you want to stand on principle. But really on a vacation, you just want to relax and enjoy yourself and not have to be looking over your shoulder. So there's... there's gay, there's gay-friendly places, and there's there's gay-unfriendly places. Uh, I can imagine. Oh, yeah. Europe has changed so much, and America as well, over the last twenty years for this. Yeah. But some parts are a little more recalcitrant than others. I think ten or twenty years ago, people would say, "Okay, you know, you got to go to Barcelona, or you got to go to this Greek island, or something like that." Are are we beyond that now? Oh, anywhere in Western Europe seems safe, even the country nowadays. It's just, just an amazing transformation. Now, that's something to be thankful for. In the last decade or two, because, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, oh, you got to go to Eos if you're gay. Uh, otherwise, you don't want to go to the other islands. You know, that's just not the case anymore at all. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the changes have been really radical. It's just you're seeing that some politicians to unify their countries have to create enemies. Well, we see it, and, you know, we see it's a political dynamic that every country has to struggle with, and we see the extreme cases. When we consider traveling in Europe, uh, it would be Poland, Hungary, Turkey, and Russia, wouldn't it? Exactly. Those are all tougher mm-hmm. countries. Yeah. All right, Ethan. Well, carry on. Happy travels. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You too. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. We're checking in with our traveling listeners and hearing what you have to say about some of the things you've heard on recent editions of Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Not long ago on Travel with Rick Steves, a few of our listeners told us what they like most about the cities they call home. While talking with a Canadian listener from Toronto, I commented that I'll never quite understand how cold, windy locales, locales like Saskatoon or Edmonton, could attract people to move there. I'm thankful that my own Norwegian ancestors eventually resettled from Edmonton to the usually milder climate of Seattle. A listener named Molly wrote us from Winnipeg to explain what I'm missing about living in one of the prairie provinces. Here's what Molly wrote. I recently heard your show with several folks calling in to give their tips on Toronto. You asked one of them about other Canadian cities, including Edmonton. The caller had never been to Edmonton, but the two of you puzzled over what there could possibly be in Edmonton to see. I'm not an Edmontonian, but I've visited several times in summer, fall, and winter. Yes, I've been to the mall, but I've also been to many excellent neighborhoods, enjoying great bakeries, restaurants, and bars. I've had great fun at farmer's markets, walking through the river valley, and at hockey games. Sure, it probably isn't on the top of everyone's list, but Edmonton has some real highlights. Highlights like green onion cakes, vintage trolley trips over the high-level bridge, and world-renowned folk and fringe festivals. I'm a Winnipegger, so I know how much everyone loves to malign the Canadian prairie cities. 
and I felt I should say something in Edmonton's defense. Thanks, Molly. Not far from Molly, Fran contacted us from Minneapolis with this email in defense of her northern metropolis. Fran wrote, I thought I would just get you started on a few things, as I've lived here in Minneapolis for 10 years. The Skyway covers 69, yes, 69 downtown blocks. You don't have to walk on the slippery sidewalks in the winter. The first bridge over the Mississippi River is the Hennepin Avenue Bridge. St. Anthony Falls is the only real waterfall on the Mississippi. In the summer, tubing with a cooler of beer on the rivers is a must. There are 20 lakes in the city, so in the summer you can walk, bike, and skate on nearly 30 miles of asphalt trails in the city. In the winter, ice sailing and ice skating is available on the lakes if you're not busy with night skiing. They convert the golf courses into cross-country skiing with pie shops on the trails. Oh, and it also has the most golfers per capita in the United States. Our symphony has one of the most acoustically correct halls anywhere. And at the stadium, they don't do tailgating in the parking lot. You tailgate in the shelter of parking garages. Then there's the legacy of the rock god Prince and great comedy. I do hope the facts will drive your curiosity and that you'll visit the beautiful city, my hometown of Minneapolis. Okay, Fran, I got it. Sounds interesting. Thanks for your email. Corey's calling from Tallahassee in Florida. Thanks for the call, Corey. Hi, Rick. So uh, about a year ago, or almost a year ago, my wife and I went on a honeymoon vacation to Europe, and we did some Rick's, Rick do's and Rick don'ts. Oh, good. Tell uh, me the Rick do's and the Rick don'ts. So uh, we went from northern northern Europe to southern Europe, and so one of the don'ts was we went to northern Europe to go to one of those uh, resort hotels to try and see the northern lights. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were in a bit of a corner, and you know we went in knowing that, and we had some fun, and I think I think I would do it again, but I don't think I would go back again. So that was going to a, an Arctic resort hotel to see the northern lights. Yeah. Okay, that's a way up in Lapland. In, in what country? Finland. In Finland. Okay, so that was probably not a recommendation. Yeah. Now, what's, um, what's the Arctic Resort Hotel like? Is it, because I've seen those ones made out of ice, you know? Yeah, so this was, uh, this was a permanent one, so they're year-round, and... Doesn't melt. They had different options. You could stay in, like, little lodges, or for, you know, for more money, you could stay in, they had little glass domes, like little glass igloo domes. Ooh. So... It was nice. You get to lay on a bed on your back and watch the stars. We saw a lot of shooting stars, but we didn't get to see any northern light. So people hope to see the northern light through those domes. Yeah. You know, I was just in Iceland, and a lot of people were going to a lot of expense and a lot of trouble and a lot of investment of time to venture from Reykjavik to the north somehow to see these northern lights. And it was like fishing. You might come back with nothing. And, uh, you know, there's so many things that are a certainty that I just figured on a first trip when you've got important stuff to do, you know, my little trick was just go to the museum about Northern Lights, and they've got all these big screens that show you the Northern Lights that you'd wait five years to see. And it's, of course, it's cheating and it's not the real thing, but but you don't risk spending a whole day and several hundred dollars uh, and coming home with nothing. Yeah, and, you know, they had some nice activities for people to do during the day and stuff, and that was nice. Uh-huh. You know, but again, it was a resort, and they had you in a corner, and everything cost money. Okay, so that was but, a Rick. That um, was a Rick. Don't. What's another Rick? Don't. 
oh, we probably did too much in our, we were there for about two weeks and we did a lot of things. We went to several countries. Yeah, that's always uh, a, that's always a challenge. We Americans want to see it all, and I think you got to just kind of go patience. You'll if you have a good time, you'll figure out a way to go back. So don't go needlessly slow, but don't snowball and try to see everything in one trip. Yeah. Okay, tell me about a Rick Do. So we did go to southern Spain. We went to Sevilla, and we took our time and relaxed a little bit more in Sevilla. Mm-hmm. And we picked up a car and drove through the Pueblos Blancos. Mm. Um, that was a ton of fun. Mm, I love it. But that's pretty windy driving. Those are like exciting roads, but they're thin and uh, drop off on one side. Yes. And we were listening to flamenco music while we did it. And I, my wife's heart, I think, stopped for a little bit just from the flamenco music and the, and the driving there. Huh. Um, but I had fun. That's, <laughs> uh, that I can just, I can almost envision that right now. I got to do that with the flamenco music cranked up next time I drive the windy roads between the the route of the Pueblos Blancos, the road of the whitewashed villages, and these are hill towns way up in the mountains in the south of Spain. And uh, we made our way down to the coast, and we stayed for a night, and then we took a day trip to Tangier. And that was just, you know, it was very simple, um, but it was a lot of fun just because, you know, Morocco is so different. Oh, and I always say, if you're going to Spain for 10 or 15 days and you have one day extra, go down to Tangier. It's it's the touristy tip of Morocco, but it'll be the most interesting day, uh, arguably, of the whole trip. Yeah, and, you know, we, we hired a guide, one that you had recommended, and, you know, you could feel it was kind of touristy and set, but again, it was just so so different and so much fun. So, Corey, when you um, hire yeah. when you hire a guide, this is a Moroccan guy, and he's in, he's in the yes. business of meeting the tourists when they get off the boat after the one-hour trip from uh, Algeciras or the, near the Rock of Gibraltar. Do you feel like he's on... Of course, he wants to take you shopping and get a kickback, and if, if you buy a carpet, he's going to earn the equivalent of uh, what his father might make in a whole month. So he's going to try to take you shopping, but did you feel like you had a friend that screened you from the other guides and, and helped you do what you wanted to do? Did he, did he empower you? Oh, yeah. He was very accommodating. You know, he seemed interested in what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he did encourage some shopping, but he certainly didn't push us. Right. And uh, we definitely didn't get hassled by yeah. or, you know, sought after by any other guides or anything. Because you're going to get hassled one way or another. So you might as well hire somebody and pay them up front. And then, you know, the hassle is kind of more friendly and, and moderate. And, and it, it was worth it, too. Oh, yeah. And because you got, he knows how to take you into the little shops and you can see the weavers and you can see the leather dyers and you can see all the artisans. Uh, it's like a cultural safari, isn't it? Yeah, and we got to go to a lot of places where they they weren't very crowded. We got to go yeah. through some little places to the Casbah and stuff, and you know it wasn't the big crowded touristy route. If we wanted to take a break and have a coffee, we could, and and he was fine with that, and it was a lot of fun. Well, there you go, Corey. Those are some good lessons from your travels, both do's and don'ts. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you, and uh, call us again after you've had some more travel adventures. Happy travels. Sounds good. Thanks. <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnikon. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations. 
from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.